We are going to be reading our second Bible reading, which comes from Luke chapter 3, verses 21 until 38. So uh, please feel free to uh, follow along in your Bibles um, or on your devices or, of course, on the projection as well. So that's Luke chapter 3, starting from verse 21. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven you are my son whom I love with you I am well pleased now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry he was the son so it was thought of Joseph the son of Heli the son of Mathat the son of Levi the son of Melchi the son of Janai the son of Joseph the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Matthias, the son of Semin, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Johanan, the son of Ressa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, the son of Nerai, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of El-Madam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliza, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Mathata, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shalah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Thank you so much, uh, Michelle. I reckon that deserves a, a round of applause. <laughs> Imagine trying to do that twice the speed. We did practice in our staff meeting this past week, reading some of those names, but uh, well done, Michelle. And wasn't uh, that kids' talk just a wonderful one? Just brilliant. It's been great having Ian Jones as part of our staff team looking after the children's ministry here as our children's ministry worker. And you will have noticed that what we are doing as a church is we're aligning what we're learning together as a church family. So in our kids' church, in our youth group, in our growth groups, and of course on Sunday together as well. So that together as a family, you'll be able to chat with your kids, your teenagers. What are we learning? What is God teaching us as a family at this time? So hopefully that's a blessing to you. Uh, but let's Let's pray. We, we do need God's help as we look at this passage. Let's join in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray that the meditation of our hearts and the words of my lips will be pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, what are we to make of this passage today? We've got two verses about a baptism, and we've got about 16 verses about the genealogy of Jesus. What are we to make of it? It's like reading the credits at the end of a movie and trying to make sense of it or trying to find that exciting. It's very hard to. In fact, at my Wednesday growth group this past week, after we did the Bible reading, someone in the growth group said, how are you going to preach on this, John? And that someone was my wife, Yvonne. How are you going to preach on this? I should have uh, perhaps given this passage to Ollie. But anyway, here we are. But of course, it is here for a purpose. And it is important. It is for us to learn. It is God's word to us, for us, and for our good. Now, the baptism of Jesus, of course, that was extremely significant, as we'll explore in a moment. It's recorded in all the Gospels. It is significant. It is one of those once-in-a-lifetime event. In fact, baptisms itself, they're very important events. They're a sign and symbol of what has taken place inside, in the heart. In fact, tonight at our evening service, we will have a baptism of one of our youth. It'll be a great joy to hear of his testimony. Next Sunday evening, we will have another baptism in our evening service. In fact, this past Tuesday at our session meeting, our elders approved the baptism of another one of our youth, which we'll hopefully get to witness in a few weeks' time. It's very exciting. It's, in fact, one of the great joys of church life, weddings, but also baptisms. Because what is it that a baptism signify? What is it are we witnessing to, demonstrating in a baptism? We see those who do get baptised, in effect, each one who gets baptised, they are saying, I am identifying with Jesus Christ. I'm identifying with his crucifixion and with his resurrection. I'm a new man. I'm a new woman. I'm taking hold of what is his as my own, and I belong to him. That's what those who do get baptized are professing. But in this passage, we're not looking at the baptism of any person, any man or woman. We're looking at the baptism of Jesus himself. And so what's that about? Why did Jesus have to get baptized? And why is it important? Important enough that it's recorded in each of the Gospels. And so let's have a look. Do keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 3. And so what was happening? Well, the people were flocking to John the Baptist in the desert, listening to him preach, and of course also being baptized to him. And so you can imagine the crowd around him. And remember what the baptism of John was about. It was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John was preparing the people. Your king, he is coming. He is coming with judgment. Prepare your hearts. Be prepared spiritually. Repent. Now remember last week we looked at the theme, the topic of repentance a little bit. It is to turn away from sin and to turn back to God. And I do hope that as a church, as we listened in on that last week, that this past week did cause us to reflect upon our own hearts. Where are the errors in which I need to repent? Remember Spurgeon, what he said, we need to discover the evil of sin. We need to mourn over that, the fact that we've committed it. And we need to resolve to forsake it. Remember what he said, love what once you hated and hate what once you loved. But now we come to Jesus. He comes on the scene. 
And just as a matter of fact, he gets baptized along with everyone else. Look at verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. Now what should be surprising when we read that one verse? What is it that should be upon our minds? What should we be questioning? I mean, I know that Jesus got baptized. Maybe some of us were baptized as well. That can't be the same. So why was Jesus baptized? I mean, was he in some sin that he had to turn to? Perhaps as a young child, he threw a tantrum. He had to repent of that. Was that the case? Or was it because those years on earth, he had in fact turned his heart away from God and now he had to turn back to God? Why did Jesus have to get baptized? Now, of course, at this point, we'd better be right with our theology. Otherwise, we'll end up with all sorts of heresies. You see, the baptism of Jesus is distinct, unique and different to the baptism we get to witness, to our own baptism. It is not the same. It is not the same as what we'll witness tonight. When we get baptised, we are identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ, identifying with his crucifixion and his resurrection. But what was Jesus doing? Well, before we could even identify with the Lord Jesus, he came to identify with us. He came to identify with humanity. And his baptism was a symbol of that. The baptism of Jesus was him standing with us. Jesus, the Son of God, standing with humanity. In all our brokenness, in all our wretchedness, in all our messiness, in all our failings and sins. You see, when Jesus came down from heaven to earth, he came down as low as you could possibly could go, to the very pits of humanity. It is as though Jesus came and sat in the mud with us. He identifies with us. It is important, this event. It's a bit like, but far more important, it's a bit like, you know, when we experience times of struggle, times of sorrow, times of sadness and despair and heartache, and it is hard and life is hard. But then the friend comes and sits by our side to be present to listen, to comfort, but more than that, to identify with our pain, to say, this is hard. I know what you're going through. It is hard, it is difficult, but I am with you. I mean, when I experienced a moment like that a few years ago, I had such a friend, and it meant the world. He sat next to me, he knew my pain. But he, on a cosmic scale... That was what Jesus did in his baptism. He finds us in our mud and our filth, and he sits in that mud and filth with us. And in a sense, he says, well, let me come and sit by your side. It's why later in the Gospels, we read of Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors. I mean, the Pharisees, they were, they were all very mad about that. When the woman washed the feet of Jesus, they would have been saying, do you not know? what her life was about, what she has done, how filthy and dirty she is? Well, of course, Jesus said, well, that's why I have come, to sit in the pits of all humanity, to be in the mud with us. He condescended to the lowest level in solidarity with the brokenness of humanity. That's why he was baptized. It's different to our baptism. 
And so do you see the significance of this? He wasn't baptized for his own sins, but to identify with sinners who need to repent. And that is all humanity. And so Jesus was doing what no human could. Jesus was doing in his baptism what all humans should. And he did so as one who represented humanity. He did so as what theologians call the federal head. He's our representative. He's the second Adam, which is what the Apostle Paul speaks of. He's the second Adam, the one to represent all of humanity. You see, the first Adam plunged humanity into sin, into death. But the second Adam came along, represented humanity in turning from sin and back to God. You see, we can't do that on our own accord. Jesus did that as our representative. That's why he was baptized. In the Gospel of Matthew, he, he, he said, remember when John the Baptist, in the same account, John the Baptist said when Jesus came along, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You're the one who should be baptizing me. But then what did Jesus say? Jesus said, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. You see, Jesus is saying, it is necessary for me to do this. You cannot do it on your own. All humanity, you cannot repent on your own. I need to be your representative. I need to walk the path that all humans will walk and must walk. And so Jesus succeeds where humanity has failed. And we'll see this next week. In the desert, when Jesus was tempted, he succeeded where Israel failed. Jesus also fulfills what we are unable to. In the Sermon of the Mount, he fulfills the laws of God perfectly. And Jesus will bear upon himself what we cannot bear ourselves. And of course, this baptism started in motion, the path to the cross. And so the baptism of Jesus was a significant event. Here we see the eternal Son of God identifying with finite, mortal, broken human beings like you and me, baptized not for his own sins, but as our representative. Jesus stands with us. It is profound. I mean, to have that friend stand with me through my struggles, that, is, that, that meant the world during that time. But to have the Son of God stand with us, to care for us in such a way, to be in the mud with us, what is that? That is amazing. That is the grace of God. But not only that, what we see here, Jesus is sent from God. He's given the Spirit of God. We see two things. He's given the Spirit of God, and he's declared to be the Son of God. Now, what was happening here? It happened at his baptism and the same account in all the Gospels. It's a bit like um, two days ago, two evenings ago, Friday night, I was involved in an ordination and induction service of a Presbyterian minister at Epping Presbyterian. It was a solemn event. It was a service that acknowledged not only the church's acceptance of this pastor as their pastor, but it was a service to recognize that this man, as he was on his knees and the laying of hands by the ministers and elders, that he was appointed by God for such a task, to pour out his life for the people of God. And so he, in some cosmic way, far more than an ordination service. In some cosmic way, this event of Jesus' baptism was, in a sense, God appointing him, commissioning him to the very task he came to earth for, 
This was, in a sense, like his commissioning service. And so let's look, verse 21. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Now you just have to imagine what that scene would have been like. What did it mean for the to heaven to open? The heavens to open, was it just the clouds moving away and the dove descending or the sky being torn apart like some portal? And Now that's not very important. It's just how my mind was working as I was thinking about that. But what is important was that the Holy Spirit came down upon him. The dove coming down upon him would have been at least visible to Jesus and John the Baptist. We're not sure if others saw that. But what do you think was the significance of that? I mean, I thought Jesus is God already. He's the second person of the Trinity. Why did he need the Spirit of God? Now, you see, we're not to think here that Jesus was at any time less than God or less than the vine. What was happening here was to show the world, God was showing the world, all of human history, this is the one you have been waiting centuries for. This is the one, as I prophesied about, the servant of the Lord, the one who will be empowered by the Spirit of God, the hope of the nations. We saw that in our first reading, do you remember? Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him and he'll bring justice to the nations. It was to fulfill that. They've been waiting centuries. When is this servant of the Lord going to come? When will the spirit of God descend upon him? This was it. He will be the one who will open the eyes of the blind, who will free the captives from prison who is the light to the Gentiles, who is the suffering servant, the one who will be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He has finally arrived on the world stage. And so in a sense, it was his commissioning service. He's given the Spirit of God. But more than that, that we see in the same verse, now God the Father declares from heaven, verse 22, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And so what we see here is a core belief of Christian faith. We see the Trinity, the relationship of the Trinity on display. God the Father declaring from heaven, the Spirit of God descending upon the Son, and the Son empowered by the Spirit of God to fulfill the will of God. But again, why do you think God had to make such a declaration? Did Jesus forget that he was the son of God. Did he forget that he needed reminding? You know, it's a bit like me and my kids sometimes. You remember, I'm your father, you're my son, you better listen to me. Was it a bit like that? I mean, did Jesus spend too long on earth already, 30 years, and he probably just forgot stuff? Well, of course not. We know that. Of course not. Even when he was 12, he was so consciously aware I am on about my father's business, which he has been for all eternity. And so why this declaration from God in heaven, you are my son? Well, just like the giving of the Spirit was to fulfill Isaiah, God's declaration of sonship was to fulfill Psalm 2, the king, the king of kings and the lord of lords. 
We recently looked at Psalm 2, didn't we, in, over January. It is about the king appointed by God, and he too has finally come. And what we're finding is that this king, anointed one of God, the servant of the Lord, it is the one and same person, Jesus Christ. And so in Psalm 2, remember that when we looked at it. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I'll proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Now when that declaration was made by God, whether anyone heard that voice or not, we can't be too sure, but it was declared. Jesus is the unique son of God, the long-awaited king, the long-awaited Messiah. And then we read, God was pleased with him. Verse 22. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Amongst everyone there in the Jordan, being baptized by John. Remember how he called them, the brood of vipers. Among the brood of vipers, there was one. Only one. In fact, only one in the entire history of mankind, of humankind, that God was pleased with. And that is, of course, his own son. Untainted by sin in every way. Never a sin to cross his mind. Never that selfish thought. Never that evil idea. Never that hint, I will serve me first. And so what was happening here at that moment, at the baptism of Jesus, was a big deal. It was like his commissioning service. After being on earth for 30 years, his ministry was about to start. And it was headed towards the cross. It is why, do you notice, we don't actually have any records of whether Jesus performed any miracles before his commissioning, before his baptism, before the pouring of the Spirit. I mean, it would have been fascinating, wouldn't it, if the evangelist recorded as a young boy at school, you know, the boy who broke his arm, well, let's bring Jesus along, he'll fix that. Or the kids at school, they forgot their lunch, and Jesus comes along and breaks a cookie and everyone gets... Well, we don't have any account like that. His miracles, we only see, started after this. Empowered by the Spirit of God... As the Son of God. They were expecting servant of Lord, Son of God, King, one and the same person. And ultimately it's because he was sent from God. And so why have we seen? Jesus comes to stand with us as the Son of God, sent from God. Now we get to his genealogy. We've only done two verses. We've got about 16 left. And so if you're a bit nervous, don't worry. This section will be a lot shorter. But a genealogy, wasn't that wonderful just to listen to that kids talk before? In the growth groups, if you're part of one, the first question is reflect on your own genealogy, your ancestry, your, your family tree, and just to reflect on those before you who have, have made a big impact upon you. And that's just quite an uh, interesting and uh, helpful exercise. And as I reflected on my family tree, I was wondering, how many generations of Christians are there in my family tree? And looking back, I remember a few years ago, I asked my grandmother, who's the first Christian in our family? And it was her uncle. And so her uncle, who left China over, over to Taiwan on the boat, saw a soldier who read the Bible, asked the soldier, what are you reading? The soldier uh, evangelized and converted my grandmother's uncle. He then told the rest of the family back in Vietnam, go to church. 
go to an evangelical church. And that's how we started having Christians in our family tree. And so now I'm at the fourth generation, our kids, hopefully the fifth. And it might be worth reflecting on yours. You might be the very first. But reflecting on our family tree, here we see the family tree of Jesus. And it's placed here after the baptism of Jesus for a purpose. It wasn't an ad hoc, I don't know where to put this, or maybe let's just put it here. And I think it's placed here to reinforce what we have just learnt at the baptism of Jesus, to make the two same points. The first one is that Jesus stands with us. And the second one is that Jesus is sent from God. Those two same points from the genealogy. Now, for those who are students of the Word, you might find, and it's interesting, that this genealogy is different to the one recorded in Matthew. Scholars differ as to why. Some say it's because Matthew traces Joseph's lineage, Luke traces Mary's lineage. But perhaps the best explanation, and we can't be too certain, perhaps the best explanation is that Matthew gives the legal descent, the royal line, the line of kings, and Luke, he gives the natural descent, the biological line. But what's the point? Well, I think it's just to make those two same points. The first one is that Jesus stands with sinners. As you look down the list from the names that you do recognize, every single one of them was a failure in one way or another. As great as they may have been, Abraham, but they were all a failure. It was, in effect, an unbroken chain of sinners from Adam all the way down to Joseph. An unbroken chain of sinners of all whom must repent. Adam was a failure. Abraham lied about his wives. And then you've got Judah. What a mess he was. Now, you might not be too familiar with the story of Judah, but it was messy. He slept with his dead son's wife. And that became one of their ancestors of Jesus himself. David, what a messy life he lived as well towards the end of his life. An adulterer, a murderer. I mean, you have that type of ancestry. You'll be ashamed of that. What did your father do? Well, my father, though he was king, he, he slept with someone else's wife and he had the husband murdered. You'll be ashamed of such a genealogy. You see, this genealogy is not meant to be impressive. It's meant to help us feel what a broken bunch of people these were. But then Jesus comes along. He sits in their mud and in their filth with sinners. He identifies with the brokenness of humanity. And the baptism of Jesus was a powerful picture of that. A humanity in need of repentance. And Jesus stands with us. That's the first one. But also from the genealogy, we learn the second point, And that is, he is sent from God. You see, as you look down the list again, you'll notice an interesting comment about Joseph. Do you notice that in verse 23? He was the son. And then we've got this comment. So it was thought of Joseph. Why add those few words there? Why that nuance? Well, it's to remind us that though Jesus was the son of Joseph, 
He was not the biological son of Joseph and therefore untainted by the sins of his ancestry, untainted by the sins of Adam that went from generation to generation. And then at the very end of the genealogy, the other end, we read Adam, the son of God. And so what that's meant to bring to mind is that, well, now we meet the second Adam, the true son of God, the one who was himself sent from God. And so you see the genealogies here after his baptism, not by mistake, but with a great purpose to show us just what we learned in the kids' talk. Jesus is fully human and fully divine. Jesus stands with humanity as the divine son of God. He's with us. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, well, so what? What's the point of his baptism, his genealogy, his identification, his own identity? Well, it is so that we might see that just as Jesus stands with us, he has also come for us, and he'll stand for us in our place. You see, the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist was really pointing forward to the true baptism, to the real baptism where Jesus will stand in our place. Now, you might be thinking, well, there's another baptism that Jesus will undergo. Yes, not with water. It was his own crucifixion. In fact, that's how Jesus spoke about his own baptism. Do you remember the story of James and John, where they wanted to be at the left and right side of Jesus? And do you remember how Jesus responded to his two disciples? He said, You don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? What did Jesus mean by that? Because by that point, he was already baptized in water by John. Well, of course, Jesus meant his own death. That's the real baptism where he would be engulfed immersed, plunged into death itself. But that will be where the forgiveness of sins that John spoke of will be achieved. He stands with humanity and he stands for humanity. And in a sense, Jesus comes and he says to his Father in heaven, let your will be done. Let your wrath pour out upon me and forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I mean, just reflect on that for a moment. Jesus coming, standing with us, and standing for us before his Father in heaven and asking his Father to forgive us. I mean, just reflect on that. The filth and mud we bear, sometimes so overbearing, but then we must reflect, does my life reflect the honour that Jesus deserves because of that. That is worth reflecting on. If Jesus came and died so that I might be forgiven, I wonder how important Jesus is on my list of priorities. Is he really my saviour, the one who died for me? He's number one, I seek his kingdom first? Or, Or do I have my work and my ambitions and my studies and my friendships and my Leisure time, and Jesus is perhaps down here somewhere. We have to come to grips with how, how big, how massive this is, that Jesus would do such a thing. But our response to him is, 
well, that's important, I'll take it, but you are down here to me, Jesus. Perhaps that's something for you to reflect on. He came from heaven to earth for us. What do we do for him? But more than that, Jesus, the Son of God, stands with us, stands for us. Why? To make us sons of God. To make us sons and daughters of the living God. We see that in John 1. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, which means you get a new genealogy, you get a new family tree, nor of human decision or father's will. You are now brought from that family tree into a new one, but born of God. And so Jesus, in a sense, says, I have come to be with you, and I've come to be for you, so that you might be like me, a child of the living God, adopted into the family of God. That is the glory of the gospel. I mean, as I reflected on this passage, it was hard going. How are you going to preach on this passage? But I was blown away by this passage. Jesus has come to identify with us so that we might identify with him. What is his becomes ours. And so whatever our genealogy, whatever might be of our ancestry, whether there's shame or not, we get plucked out of that one and we get it placed into God's one. The spirit that was given to Jesus Christ. You know what? Same spirit given to us. The same spirit of God who indwells us, who empowers us, not to play and to live for ourselves, but to serve, to be like Jesus, to do the will of the Father. And you know what? The approval that Jesus heard. You're my son, whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. You know what? That may be the words we hear one day as well. When we come to meet our Father, my son, my daughter, whom I love, with you, how you live your life, how you live your life for me, how you live your life seeking first the kingdom of God, with you I'm well pleased. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this part of Scripture. Hard to understand, but yet so profound, because Jesus is the one who has come to stand with us and for us as the Son of God, that we might be made sons and daughters of the living God. And so, Lord, those of us who are yet to respond, make us respond, Lord, by your Spirit. And those of us who have, we pray, Lord, that we might live a life where we will hear those words from you, that you are pleased with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.